be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. We're going to finish up a larger text. We'll be in verses 32 through 34. You know, I quoted Gollum in my sermon last week, and so I thought I'd give a little context for those of you who are like, who in the world is Gollum? In the Lord of the Rings books, the author J.R.R. Tolkien, I think, does a masterful job of illustrating the depravity of man. In this fantasy world that he calls Middle Earth, there exists a ring so powerful that anybody in possession of this ring can use it to fulfill their own desires. And they will be able to attain the power that they lust after, even though it will mean crushing those without the power. You know, even in this, in this world, even the most heroic characters, Even the best characters cannot wield the ring without being drawn away by the lusts of the flesh. They too would give in and use this power to fulfill their own desires. And I was reading someone recently who said, you know, I found a plot hole in the Lord of the Rings. Just use the ring to do good. It's like you've missed the whole point. It's demonstrating the the, the depravity of man and the lusts of the flesh. And you know, as we've walked through these texts, again, we've taken three weeks to walk through this larger passage, but I think money can be like that ring. It can expose our hearts and we can use the money and the possessions and the material things that God has given us to serve ourselves, even if it means I'm hurting those around me that are in need. So what we need this morning is to be captured by something greater than the fulfillment of our own desires. Something greater than this ring, so to speak, or something greater than money. We need to be captivated by Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we're going to obey the text this morning, we must see Christ for who he truly is. The one who is absolutely worthy of our love and allegiance and worship and obedience. Only then will we be free to not walk in the lusts of the flesh, but to begin to walk in self-sacrificial love for the good of others. And by that, storing up treasures, Jesus says, for ourselves in heaven. So there's three verses this morning. Again, we're going to sort of try to bring this whole passage to a conclusion that began in verse 13. But three points Three verses. The first is, if we're going to be seeking the kingdom, which Jesus told us to do in verse 31, if we're going to be seeking the kingdom, uh, then if we do that, we are free from fear. Look there in verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So Jesus begins here with, with a note of assurance for his disciples. We've seen as we've walked through the book of Luke, as we've walked through these recent chapters even, that the disciples are facing a lot of impending danger, a lot of unknowns in their future. They've just been told, you know what, do not fear those who can kill your body. Fear the one who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. So they know there's some some threat that's coming from those who can harm the body. Jesus also warned them not not too long ago in 
in Luke, that they would be dragged before synagogues and rulers and courts and and encourage them not to worry when you are dragged before the courts because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. So they know there's this impending persecution that's coming. Jesus has also instructed them in the Lord's Prayer and even in in, uh, chapter 12 to not only pray for their daily bread, but to trust that the Lord will provide it. So these disciples are going to be living day to day, wondering or hopefully trusting that the Lord will provide. And it's in this context, there's persecution coming. They're following the one who has nowhere to lay his head. They are having to trust the Lord for tomorrow's food. It's in this context that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, do not fear. Don't be afraid, little flock. Remember, in this context, Jesus is teaching us not to worry. He began in verse 13 with the, with the illustration of how we can become occupied with money and begin to doubt God's sovereignty and good care for his people. And so we're still in this section that fits together where if we're obsessive about money and possessions, then we begin to want to take things into our own hands and we doubt God's goodness and care. And therefore, we begin to worry. And so Jesus continues this line of thought. And with this prohibition against fear, I I think Jesus drives to the heart of where our anxious thoughts, we might call it worry, where it comes from. As you think about the list of things we typically think about. Now, in this text, we're talking about largely about provision and, and money. But as you think about the list of things that that you or I typically worry about, I think we'll find in those things that that we are fearful that we might lose something. We are afraid that we are going to suffer loss. And so when we begin to lose sight of, of God's truth, we imagine and we begin to become obsessed with what it might look like to lose whatever it is that we're desiring about, whether it's money, whether it's health, whether it's our house, our kids' safety. And we can quickly obsess about how we, in our own power and our own strength, are going to keep from losing whatever it is that we are so fearful that we might lose. So we might, again, we're trying to think about this this fear in light of the, the context of anxiety and worry. When you are anxious, you might might think to ask the question, well, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of losing? Liz and I were meeting with a a young lady years and years ago in our student ministry, and she was really anxious around people. She came with what what the world would call social anxiety. And so she was really scared and nervous around big crowds. And so she wanted to kind of hang in the corner and, and have her earbuds in because it's safer for me to sort of be distanced from the people that could hurt me. And as God began to expose to her some of her fears of being let down or being disappointed or hurt by her peers, she began to learn that that people are not those who need to be feared. People are those that God has put in your path to be loved and to be cared for. She began to understand that she had a responsibility before God to love and serve her neighbor, not to fear and distance herself from her neighbor. And so it was really cool what the Lord began to do in this this girl's heart. And by the time she was a senior, she was like the go-to 
welcome team all-star. You know, whenever there was a visitor, we didn't have to ask her. She goes and she finds them and she sits with them and she gets their phone number and she texts them during the week. Why? Because she began to assess, well, man, why am I so afraid? This has become an idol in my heart that I'm trying to protect myself from being rejected, from being hurt. And therefore, I'm not loving those who are around me. So the question for us, what about, what about us? Can we begin to see how our anxious thoughts are connected to what we are afraid of? That's why Jesus said, you know, why are you worried about this? Oh, you of little faith. Because we begin to doubt God's goodness. Goodness in his care, goodness in his protection. And yes, goodness in the will and the commands that he has given us to love those around us. When we're fearful and we worry, we're demonstrating a lack of faith that God loves his children and that he has the ability to provide for them. So some of us, like this this young lady, are worried, are fearful that they might embarrass themselves in front of others or be hurt. Right? Nobody wants to be embarrassed. I'm not saying like you should desire to be embarrassed, but it can drift, these fears drift into an obsessive pattern of thinking where we forget about God and we forget about what God is calling us to do. Or maybe closer to this context, you you are fearful of God's provision or not providing for you. You're worried about money and that preoccupies your thinking. Again, asking the question, well, what am I fearful of? might give you insight into your heart. You might be honest and say, you know what, I'm a little bit worried about what the next few years is going to look like. The economy looks like it's a mess. So then we at least get a glimpse into our heart and we can know where we can turn to in Scripture to renew our minds and begin to be conformed to the image of Christ. We can study God's character. We can go to Luke chapter 12. You might consider memorizing chapter 12, verse 15 where Jesus says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Or you might memorize Jesus' words that we mentioned earlier. Do not fear those who can only kill the body, but fear God. Fear God. Worry is driven by what we fear. And what we need to replace that with is a firm trust in God's providential Good care for his children. We are secure. In, if you are in Christ this morning, you are secure. The, the, the loving arms of the Father are wrapped around you to the extent that you will not be lost. Nothing will come upon you that God does not intend to come upon you. So Jesus, I think, assures the disciples then, fear not, but by even the way he addresses them. Little flock. He highlights the security that we have in God by how he addresses them. He reminds them that they belong to God. They are his little flock. As you know, sheep need to be cared for. They need to be protected by someone else, someone smarter than them and someone greater than them. The Bible uses this illustration a lot. It uses it to describe us, we, who have wandered off like lost sheep. And in wandering away from the Lord, we have put ourselves in a perilous position. And we were in danger of facing the wrath of God, the just penalty for our sins and our rebellion and our wandering away from him. And in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. And he did just that. He, he, he's not like a hireling, he says in John 10. Somebody who's just going to run when there's danger. Jesus is the good shepherd. He laid down his life so that his little flock are no longer in danger of the judgment falling on them. They're no longer in danger of the wrath of God. Instead, they might rest in security and safety and in the grace of God in which we stand. Those who have come to know Christ can confess the reality of Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let us say, I don't lack anything. I don't lack anything. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. You know, in a world, and I confess even, even my own heart, where we want to be impressive, we want to be known, we want to have it all together, you know, we are reminded here that we are God's flock. We're like sheep who are in need of rescue. We're a fragile people who are cared for by, by Christ and by God the Father. So he assures them, I think, even in the way he addresses them, but he gives another primary reason for why they should fear not. We see it there in the word for. This, when you see that word, oftentimes it means this is the reason why you should do what you're being told to do. The primary reason Jesus gives for his disciples not to fear is that the Father delights to give them the kingdom. Now the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom, the way the Bible talks about the kingdom, I think can be hard to understand. We want to be humble in these passages that, that can be difficult for us to wrestle with. Jesus has said things like the kingdom is here. The kingdom is in your midst. And at the same time, he's told his disciples to pray for the coming of the kingdom. In Acts 1.8, the disciples say, hey, is this the time where the kingdom will be established? And Jesus doesn't rebuke them and saying it's already established, you dummies. But in Colossians, when Paul's listing workers, he calls them workers for the kingdom of God. And so there seems to be this, what some, some theologians call like an already and a not yet, these present and future aspects of this kingdom. So as we, as we try to fit Scripture together, we might say that we await the final coming and consummation of this kingdom where Christ rules on earth. But now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He rules and reigns, and all authority has been placed under Him. And there's a sort of, I think the way the Bible talks about this, a sort of inbreaking of the glory of the kingdom. In other words, we get a glimpse, we get a foretaste of the righteousness, the joy, the peace that will be characteristic of the final consummation of the reign of Christ. And if you miss all that and you're not, you're not up on debating the kingdom, and just know this. God delights, I think this is what the point of this text is, God delights in pouring out the spiritual blessings that Christ has earned for his people. And that's why you shouldn't fear. Because God delights in pouring that out. You can rest secure in God because the work of Christ in suffering, in dying, in being raised to life, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and in sending the Holy Spirit, God delights to do that for His people. 
It is his good pleasure. It is his will to do that for his people. And if you're trusting this morning in the work of Christ and not in your own work, Paul says in Colossians, you've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. You are secure because you are the little flock of God. This is the good pleasure of God, the text says. That means that God saw what is good and God is sovereign and he's all wise that Dan's going to talk about. For something to be God's good pleasure or anybody's good pleasure for that matter, in the, it, it means to consider something as good and therefore worthy of choice. And then when we apply that to God, we know that he does what is best. He always knows what is best and he has chosen to do it and he is delighted to do it. We know that God does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, but we also know that God is a good God, and so whatever he pleases is good. God does not grant these salvation benefits, your justification, your adoption, your sanctification, all of the benefits that are wrapped up in your union with Christ. God does not grant these reluctantly or begrudgingly, He does it joyfully and according to his will. You know, we have to, some of us have to constantly battle this thought that God the Father is stingy with us and sort of begrudgingly acted on our behalf. He delights in saving his people, and there is much rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. Consider that about your own salvation. There was much rejoicing in heaven. And you came to know Christ by the call of the Holy Spirit and placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can be free from fear because you are God's. He is a good and a kind God. We saw last week, he knows the number of hairs on your head. He cares for the birds in the market. He cares for the ravens in the sky. And he clothes the field with lilies. Certainly he'll care for you. So fear not. We rest secure in Christ. Secondly, in light of these truths, we can have freedom then from greed, or we can be free from greed. Look there in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. When we are seeking the kingdom, verse 31, or we might say when we understand our position in Christ, when we understand the generous heart of God towards his people and his providential care, we are free then to live radically generous lives. God delights in giving salvation He knows what you need. He promises to provide for you. He deeply cares for you. And the more we soak in these realities, they begin to shape us into people who are generous with what we have. People who live more for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor than for the fulfillment of our own lusts and desires. One commentator pointed out, you know, as we think about this larger text, 
Jesus' disciples must live lives qualitatively different from those of people who have no trust in God's fatherly care and no fundamental goals beyond material things. We should, be, we should live fundamentally different. That's what Jesus said earlier. He said, the world worries about these things. You don't have to worry about these things. So now you can be generous with what God has given you. You know, I was reading one old preacher who was going back to the stories of the, the birds that are cared for by God. And the birds are sort of looking down on these humans who are running fl- frantically around. And the robin says to the sparrow, why do you think these humans are so worried and distressed? And the sparrow says back, they must not have a heavenly father that cares for them and provides for them the way that we do. You know, the more we're convinced of the goodness and the character and the love of God, the more we are able to be free then from this idol of possessions, money. The rich fool, he had an abundant crop and the only thing he could think to do was to build bigger barns so that he could store up more of his crop. And Jesus said he was not rich towards God. He was not rich towards God because... He laid up treasure for himself on this earth. If you were directed by love and the glory of God, he would have given away his excess to bless those in need around him. So Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. You know, the early church is characterized by this type of radical generosity. Some were even selling homes and and land so that they might give to others. If you Read Acts 2 and Acts 4. This is, this is what the church was doing. There was no one in the church in Jerusalem who had need because everyone was so generous and sacrificial towards one another. There was a couple, though, in Acts chapter 5 who sold their land and wanted to deceive everyone into believing that they were giving everything that they made off the profit of their land. And Acts 5 records, if you've read through Acts, you know I'm talking about Ananias and Sapphira. They sold the land, but only brought a portion of the proceeds to the apostles. So what was the sin? Well, it's interesting in Peter's response to Ananias. Again, you can read Acts 5, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarize what Peter says. He says to Ananias and Sapphira, well, first to Ananias, the land was yours. You didn't have to sell it. When you did sell it, the money was yours. So why did you lie to the Holy Spirit and try to deceive everyone into thinking that you were being more generous than you actually were? You've, le- you've lied to God by not giving it all away. The sin in Acts 5 was Ananias and Sapphira deceiving others and lying. It's important, I think, because they were not judged for not giving everything they owned. They weren't judged for not giving away 100%. So in the book of Acts and in this passage, it doesn't seem that Jesus is literally commanding, sell your house. Somebody... Get a hold of the realtor this afternoon and list your house for sale. Now, but we have to demonstrate that. We have to be clear on that. That's why I'm going to Acts 5 to try to demonstrate this. Because if Jesus were saying it, then that's exactly what we should do. Because we should be afraid to disobey God's word. 
But it doesn't seem to be that he's saying, now sell your car this afternoon, sell your house this afternoon. But rather than that we would see all of our possessions as not belonging to us, we hold them with an open hand. If there's a need and we can meet it, it's a no-brainer for God's people because we're secure in Christ and we serve a God who is sovereign and providential and will care for us. We should be willing to part with what God has given us if it means that God is pleased and glorified and we're able to serve our neighbor. That's what we're meant to do with what God has given us, to love God and to love our neighbor in need. Our money and our possessions, we're simply stewards of those things to make much of God and to serve the needy. So if we are seeking to live consistent with the reign of God in our lives, or you might say if we, if we want to live out the values of this Kingdom, even as I said earlier, I think we're awaiting the consummation of this kingdom. Then we will be we will be generous with those around us, generous with those in need. And we've seen this play out in our church, and we even mentioned some last week. You know, I've got a few other examples of how God's people have provided for those in need. I, I know of furniture that's been purchased for others. I know of vehicles that have been given to others. Many of us have benefited from people's homes being opened to us. I, I often hear of you know, anonymous gifts that somebody hears that somebody is, is in need. And so, hey, I, I heard this. Here's a gift. Don't tell them it was from me. Or, or even we would be remiss if we didn't mention regular sacrificial giving that demonstrates that we're not living for this world. We're living for the one to come. We glorify God when we hold lightly what God has given us. We make much of him. Even in our city, you know, this isn't specifically about money, but, you know, someone was telling me recently that they were inviting someone to to church. And when they said Southern Hills, the person that was being invited said, oh, I read about that in the paper. That's the church where that one lady gave her kidney to the other guy who, who needed it. They're like, yeah, that's... Again, we glorify God when we're generous and free with what we've been given. Now, that's not a command for everyone to go donate their kidneys. <laughs> but we've got all these ways that we have an opportunity to make much of Christ with our stuff with our money. And what a responsibility we have. We, we've talked about how, as those who live in America in this time, I mean, it, very few of us would not fall under the warnings of those who are rich. So instead of serving ourselves like the rich fool, we're called to be generous. And in doing that, we lay up treasures in heaven. When we give away stuff for the good of others, we, we are the opposite of the rich fool who laid up treasures for himself on this earth. We are rich towards God, to quote Jesus, or, or from 1 Timothy 6, we are rich in good works, generous, ready to share with those in need. Ultimately, we, we, we want to be living in light of eternity, knowing that the treasures that we store up for ourselves on earth, they're temporary. They don't go with us. 
You know, you've heard every preacher in the world say there's no U-Haul behind the hearse. I saw a picture of one on Facebook and I thought, well, there goes that. (laughs) But it didn't do him any good. Right? You can't take it with you. In other words, what I think Jesus is driving at is there, there are two ways to live. We can live in light of eternity and store up treasures in heaven, or we can live in light of the temporary and that which is passing away, and we can store up treasures for ourselves here on earth. So this passage gives us an important reminder about the temporary nature of this life and of the things that we might accumulate in this life. It's foolish. It's foolish for us to live for that which is temporary. But you know, it's hard. It's hard for us to to look past the immediate. It's hard for us to look past what's right in front of us. You know, we're like children in one sense, where we're we're just, we want immediate gratification. And if you tell a child, every day I'm going to put a dollar on this counter until you grab it. And that pile is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and, uh, until you grab it. I mean, I, if you think about a four-year-old, how many days are going to go by before that cash is gone? Not very many. Why? Because it's there. It's visible. It's hard to think about a year from now, much less look in and think about eternity. Likewise, we have those things that we can see. We can pull up our bank accounts online and see a real number there. We can pull into a driveway and see a house. We can see those numbers in our bank account go up and then back down when we fill up with gas. (laughs) So we we need the Word to renew our minds and to push us beyond the immediate so that we don't just think about today but we're reminded of the glories of the kingdom that awaits us. We need to be reminded that a thief can break in and steal our money or our possessions. But if we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, there is no thief that can break in and steal. Or if someone had very, very expensive clothing, maybe a moth could sneak in there and sort of destroy the clothing. There is no moth that can destroy the treasures that we lay up in heaven. So when Jesus returns, He richly rewards those who have stored up treasures in heaven. He richly rewards those who have stored up treasures in heaven. Now this is not some kind of works righteousness. This isn't sending payments on ahead of us so that our debt is paid before God, and when we stand before Him, he, he has enough money stored up there on our accounts. That's not it. It can't be it. We know that only Christ is worthy to be in the presence of the Father. But we also know that the one who, was, who is worthy was slain like a lamb led to the slaughter so that he might wash us clean. If if you're thinking about Revelation, that he might wash us clean in the blood of the lamb. We're washed clean from sin by the sacrificial work of Jesus so that we might have access to God, not based on our own sending on ahead of our good works, but through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So don't misunderstand the passage. Don't misunderstand the message. 
It isn't that giving some money away to charity or dropping some clothes off at the storehouse here in Custer or Goodwill in Rapid earns you some kind of right standing before God. It's it's not that. Everything in Scripture screams that that's not the meaning of this text. We must come to Him. You, you must come to Him admitting your sin and trusting in the work of Jesus for you. Only His work can stand for us at the judgment. But then we are assured that at that judgment, our good works testify to the genuineness of our faith. Our good works testify to the genuineness of our faith. We are demonstrating by giving away money, laying up treasures in heaven, that we are looking forward to that day when Christ returns and he rewards his people for what they have done. In other words, we might just say this, brothers and sisters, your labor, your generosity, your sacrificial giving, it's not in vain. God sees what's done even in secret and he generously rewards those who know him and demonstrate that through their own good works. We've been found faithful in him. He comes, Revelation 22, bringing reward. So in Christ, we might be free from fear for seeking the kingdom. We can be free from fear. We can be free from greed. And lastly, we might be free from worldliness. Look there in verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will, there will your heart be also. So Jesus ends this section with a, with a proverb of sorts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, we're treasuring where we're putting our money. That's what's going to drive us. There's that scene at the, in the movie, The Count of Money Cristo. I don't know if it's in the book or not. I'd love to be able to say I'm quoting the book, but I'm not. <laughs> you know, Dantes is imprisoned wrongfully, and he's growing increasingly discouraged. His once... You know, his once faith in God has now waned and he's speaking with another prisoner who happens to be a priest and he confesses, Dantes does, God has faded from my heart. And the priest says, and what has replaced him? And what has replaced him? You know, our hearts are always directed somewhere. There's always someone or something that's ruling on the throne of our hearts. We're either directed towards God or we're directed towards those things in creation. And I think Jesus' proverb here teaches us that the way we use our money actually reveals to us what we're living for and what we're loving and what we're worshiping. Remember the context. We've said there's two ways to live. Laying up treasure in heaven or laying up treasure on earth. And, I, and Jesus says, wherever that treasure is, that's where your heart is. Whether you're laying it up on earth or in heaven, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So if your treasure is in eternity, if you're laying up treasure in heaven, then your heart is set on that. And, and you can find assurance in that. And you are laying up treasure for yourself. But if your treasure is in this world... And we'll know that because we'll be stingy and we'll be greedy. We won't be rich towards God. We won't be 
generous and ready to share with those in need, then our heart is set on this world. doesn't matter what our profession is. Our hearts are revealed by the way we handle what we have. And we are loyal by nature to the thing that we think we need the most. So again, is it this world? Or is it Christ? We cannot be loyal, the Bible says, to God and money. We cannot serve both. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We'll get there in Luke chapter 16. So there's something about money, there's something about possessions, there's something about material things that have the ability to test us and to reveal our hearts. We either live for money or we serve God with our money. And Jesus says, be generous with those in need. The missionary and martyr Jim Elliott, you, you may know this quote, he famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, it may seem so foolish to you to look at someone's tax returns and see they gave away that in a year. You may think it's not sound money. It's not sound principles to give away money to those who are in need. You know you can invest that money and you can get a greater return on your money. But Jesus is teaching us this morning that the truly foolish thing is to cling to money at the expense of following Christ. It is foolish to love money and to serve money when that will perish. It is temporary. We could quote Jesus, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his own soul? If you cling to this life, you'll lose it. But if you let go for my sake, you'll find it. God this morning invites all of us to find true joy in Him, to be truly satisfied, not in the things of this world, not in the things of creation, but to know that there's something greater than those things. There's a greater treasure found in God through Jesus Christ, and Jesus' mission was to make that a reality and a possibility. His death was the price that was required, and He endured the cross for our sake that we might be reconciled to God and know true joy, and begin to use the things that God has given us for His glory. If you are in Christ this morning, know that this freedom from fear, freedom from greed, freedom from worldliness, this is the fruit of knowing Christ. This is not the ground of knowing Christ. Radical generosity and a willingness to give comes from our assurance and knowledge that Jesus is the one who did not consider the glories of heaven something to be grasped, but willingly gave them up to come to this earth and take on the form of a servant and even die on a cross for our sins. And now we are living for the kingdoms of this world. We live for another kingdom. You know, we might say that the, that the church is like a little outpost in a hostile world. We are settled in our security in Christ. 
We are worshiping him together. We are spreading his gospel and, and seeking to announce to all the world what God has done in Jesus Christ. We are eagerly awaiting his return. And as we do all that, we are holding that which God has given us with such an open hand that if God will be glorified and I can serve someone else and it's wise for me to do so, yeah, I'm just a steward. Lord, it's all yours anyways. Use it for your good, your glory, and the good of my neighbor. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for challenging us this morning from your word. May your spirit... Take the word and apply it to our hearts. Change us, mold us, shape us into the image of Christ. May we love you to a greater degree this morning in light of what you've done to accomplish our salvation in Christ and through the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.